Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the increasingly occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on June 4th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terrier, Professor of Law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. An excellent guest this week, Elizabeth Chambly-Birch, holds the Fuller E. Calloway Chair of Law at the University of Georgia. She has a stunning publication record published in the New York University Law Review, Cornell Law Review, Virginia Law Review, Vanderbilt Law Review, Washington University Law Review, Boston University Law Review, and George Washington Law Review. No wonder I could never get in any of those. <laughs> in 2015, Professor Birch was awarded the American Law Institute's Early Career Scholars Medal in recognition of her work on class actions and multi-district litigation and its potential to influence improvements in the law. She teaches and researches civil procedure, class actions, and mass torts. On a personal note, as my research on opioids drifted into the area of multi-district litigation, I realized I was woefully underinformed and frequently was rescued by Professor Birch's incisive <laughs> writing. So a big welcome to the pod, Beth. Thank you. So there was a major omission from my recitation of your publications and the subject of our conversation today. Your new book, Mass Tort Deals, published last month by Cambridge University Press. Congratulations. It's a great read. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. It's nice to finally have it out. It's been a long time coming. Oh, those, yeah, the gestation is, is ugly, isn't it? This one was particularly ugly. <laughs> At least six years in the gestation. Oh, my. So let's start, if we can, with some baby steps, because they're the the only ones in this space I'm capable of. (laughs) How does MDL litigation differ from Rule 23 class actions? And why are class actions increasingly unpopular or legislatively limited, while MDLs seem increasingly popular? Well, so they are not mutually exclusive. Um, Multi-district litigation can include class actions. Um, Multi-district litigation includes a wide variety variety of topics, employment discrimination, intellectual property, antitrust. But my focus has been on products liability, multi-district litigations, which are typically not certified as class actions, mostly because you have um, a lot of different Well, a lot of different court opinions, a lot of different legislative opinions that have intervened in the space that make class actions harder and harder to certify. So to certify a Rule 23b3 class, you have to have common questions that predominate over individual ones. And as you might imagine, if you've looked at the opioid lawsuits, for example, um, there are so many different claims, there are different theories of liability. Even if you take something more routine, like uh, the pelvic mesh, litigation, which is certainly not routine uh, in the sense that it's a routine procedure, but the individual circumstances tend to uh, come foremost, right? Why did this particular woman need mesh? What was it trying to accomplish? What did it do to her body? How many revision surgeries did she have to have? So as soon as we start talking in those terms, you can begin to see that uh, defendants have a pretty good argument that common questions do not predominate over individual ones. So as I mentioned, I came for the opioids, but stayed for the silver procedure lesson. But what about my healthcare colleagues, three of whom are probably going to listen to this? Why is this topic important in the health medical space? You mentioned products liability, so I guess that that tells us some some part of the answer. Yes, well, uh, it includes all kinds of different products liability, hip implants, it includes uh, medical devices, it includes the massive sprawling opioid lawsuits. The opioid lawsuits are unique in the sense that they aren't being brought by private parties, so to speak, although there are certainly some of those. 
Uh, but mostly they are being brought by states and local counties who have hired private attorneys to litigate on their behalf, many of whom have choose, chosen to try to sue outside of the federal lawsuits and have chosen to stay in state court rather than being uh, part of this sprawling multi-district litigation, which is in front of Judge Dan Polster in Ohio. So I should point out that uh, this book is a wonderful example of modern legal scholarship with its broad empirical underpinnings. And there are there are times when it, it, it almost read like an investigative piece. Um, there's a conclusion, mini conclusion that, that comes early in the book, I think, that you say your work exposes a tight-knit network of repeat players and judges who use government power to push and enforce private deals. And that that isn't my expectation of the process. So how did your research uh, end, end up with that conclusion? Well, when I say government actors, I'm not talking about state attorney generals uh, in the opioid lawsuits. I'm talking about the judges themselves. And one of the most surprising things that I found is that even though most of the these products liability cases end in private aggregate settlements, which you would typically think of as just being between the plaintiffs and the defendant. The judge actually plays a very integral role in um, both encouraging these lawsuits, pushing these lawsuits, uh, excuse me, pushing these settlements, and then subsequently enforcing these settlements. So just to give you a sense as to uh, what I mean, about 53% of the judges in the cases that ended in these private settlements um, publicly endorsed the deals in some way, giving their judicial stamp of approval. 64.7% um, of them appointed claims administrators or settlement masters to formally preside over private settlements, which in the minds of non-legally sophisticated plaintiffs, looks like the judge is approving it, uh, even though it hasn't been through the same sort of approval process that you have in a Rule 23 class action, where the judge has to certify that the class itself and the settlement itself is fair, reasonable, and adequate. What percentage of MDLs end in settlement? And if they don't, what happens next? Well, the large majority of them end in settlement. I was looking at a, a data set of all the products liability proceedings that were pending on the MDL docket back in May of 2013. So that let me follow them for a number of years. Um, and by the time I started looking at the outcomes, uh, about 45.6% of them had settled through private aggregate settlements. Um, another large portion had settled through class action settlements. Some of them were still ongoing. Um, about 10% uh, ended in defense verdicts, either arbitration or some sort of a, a Daubert or preemption ruling that the judge granted summary judgment as to the whole lot of the cases. Where do these bellwether trials fit in? Because M the MDL process is basically a pre-litigation, pre-trial process, isn't it? So where, where, do, where do bellwethers fit? Uh, judges uh, use bellwether trials when they're trying to get a sense as to what the uh, merits of the litigation look like. Uh, technically, these are supposed to be tr for pretrial purposes only, but in reality, only about 3% of cases that are centralized through multi-district litigation ever return to their home courts, right, the federal courts in which they were filed. Uh, so what happens to the rest of them? Well, as we've seen, the large majority of them end up settling. Um, 
And although judges can't try all of the different cases because there's our personal jurisdiction and venue type questions, they can try certain bellwether cases that are either filed in that particular court or where the parties consent. And the hope from a bellwether trial process is to get an idea about the smattering of claims, uh, the, the merits of different claims, what the arguments for the plaintiffs and the defense are, um, what the merits actually look like. And uh, typically the merits only come out through the trial process itself. So the bellwether trials are, in, in one would hope, designed um, to provide some glimpse into the merits. Although, as you can tell, uh, sometimes when judges tell plaintiffs' attorneys, hey, you pick your cases, you pick five, defense, you pick five, and I'll pick a few, then you tend to get the outliers, the plaintiffs' best cases and the defendants' best cases, and then a few random ones that are thrown in. So I know you were working with a an MDL data set, right? Is there any comparative data between MDL settlements, class action settlements, and individual settlements to get a sense of the the damages or other remedies on a comparative basis through those different processes? You have just described the holy grail for me, uh, which is to try <laughs> to get settlement outcomes. One of the things that I found very frustrating about this process is that there is uh, no data available, at least data that is publicly available, on how plaintiffs fair in these cases. Um, So I can look at the inputs, right, the procedural inputs, and I can raise questions about what those inputs look like. But I'm not able to do a substantive comparison between the outcomes that one would get in a class action versus a non-class case, largely because, um, well, obviously, in private settlements, the actual outcomes tend to remain private. There are a few examples uh, where you can get data. Uh, Judge Fallon is a notable exception here. I've been able to get data from the propulsive settlements and from the Vioxx settlements. But um, by and large, you can't get data on the private cases, and you can't even really get data on the class action cases. Um, Most of the class action dockets end as soon as the judge signs off on the fairness hearing and certifies that the settlement is fair, reasonable, and adequate. So you don't actually know where the money ends up going. So let's turn to the the players here. Repeat players, as as you point out. Let's start with the lead plaintiff. Who are they? How are they appointed? And what's their role? The lead plaintiff's attorneys are are designed to help the judge, right? So if you have the pelvic mesh cases and you have 104,000 cases in front of you, you can't talk to 104,000 different lawyers. So you pick a handful of lawyers that are supposed to coordinate the cases on behalf of the plaintiffs. Um, Judges pick pick lead lawyers through a couple of different methods. Um, Early on, they tended towards the consensus method, which is basically just lawyers, you go and hash it out and fight it out amongst yourselves. And whoever comes out with a consensus, that's who I'll appoint. Um, Increasingly, they have started using a competitive selection process. Uh, But even this tends to empower repeat players because when they use competitive selection, they're looking for uh, plaintiff's attorneys who have experience and expertise, plaintiff's attorneys who have the financial wherewithal to be able to fund these massive cases, uh, and people who get along well with everybody else. And so you end up with the same sort of repeat players over and over again put into positions of power. So you note how these uh, lead plaintiff's lawyers are appointed really for the judge's purposes. Indeed, there's a passage in the book. Today's leadership committees, they are judicially appointed, mandatory, and hierarchical. Their raison d'etre is judicial, not attorney convenience. But that passage then continues. Once appointed, 
appointed lead lawyers hijack the cockpit and restrict access to the judge. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure, I'll talk about it using the opioid lawsuits as an example. You might have seen the lawyers for the opioid babies struggling to try to get a say and some sort of voice on the leadership decision-making team. Uh, they are not part of the leadership committee in the opioid lawsuits. These, feel- are, the, these are the NAS babies? Yes, yes, the neo- neonatal abstinence syndrome babies. Um, yes, so, so part of the problem for them is they're not able to get a seat at the decision-making table, they're not getting notices about discovery, and they have certain questions that are unique for them that aren't likely to be developed by the state and counties. They're wanting to know what sort of uh, targeted marketing the drug manufacturers sent towards uh, uh, obstetricians and gynecologists. They're wanting to develop their medical monitoring claims, um, and they, they don't have a seat at the table. They don't have access to the judge, and they don't have access to the lawyers, and they don't have access to the discovery materials. You spent quite a lot of space in the book talking about the remuneration of the lead lawyers. You discuss something called common benefit fees, for example, and a whole bunch of, in our world, I think I'd call them kickbacks, but um, uh, certainly uh, interesting compensation models. So how, how does the, the lead group get compensated and how does that compensation differ from, I don't know, what do you call them, the follower group? <laughs> Um, yes, the outsiders, the outcasts, right? There's a lot of different names that you could come up with. Um, but common benefit fees are designed to benefit the lead plaintiff's lawyers for doing work on behalf of the group as a whole. Uh, they're funding the costs of litigation, which can be substantial. Uh, they're doing work on behalf of a bunch of different plaintiffs, not just their own clients. And to the extent that they benefit people who aren't their clients, then they should be compensated for doing things like that. The worry that I have is uh, that these common benefit fees have gotten severed from contingency fees. And we tend to think about contingency fees as, as uh, tying together the fates of lawyers to their clients. The idea being that the better the client fares, the better the lawyer fares. And when you sever that link, some mischief can occur. Um, so I'll give you one example from the propulsive litigation, which is one of the earliest proceedings within my data set. Um, the lead lawyers negotiated a common benefit fee directly with Johnson & Johnson, right? So their opponent was the one that was paying their attorney's fees rather than their clients. They designed a settlement program, uh, and all of the clients, all of the claimants had to enter into the settlement program without knowing what, if anything, they would recover. So out of 6,000 some odd plaintiffs who entered into the settlement program, only 37 actually recovered any money whatsoever. They recovered an aggregate amount of $6.5 million dollars. Uh, and the rest of the money in the fund reverted uh, mostly back to Johnson & Johnson. And so the trouble is you have lead lawyers getting $27 million, their clients getting $6.5 million. If there were a, a contingency fee arrangement in place, that would never happen. Something that came up um, about a year ago now in the opioid uh, MDL was it seemed that some of the lead lawyers were being sort of funded by what looked like sort of venture capital firms 
themselves may be owned by lead lawyers or something. And that caused Judge Polster to order some disclosure. Can you can you dig into that a little bit? I found that very confusing. Absolutely. We've seen a rise in third-party financing. And third-party financing is kind of an umbrella term that we use for a whole myriad of different industries. So um, there can be loans directly to plaintiffs for things like living expenses, rent, car payments, etc. Those are what we think of as kind of like a payday loan or a tax refund anticipation loan. Um, there can be financing that is provided to the lawyers to front the costs of litigation. So instead of going to a bank and securing assets with uh, your brick and mortar assets, um, you would go to a financier and say, look, I have a portfolio of cases. Uh, I expect that this portfolio of cases will generate some substantial return. I'd like for you to advance me the, the money so that I can go in and I can be a contender in the opioid lawsuits. Um, and that's that's one of the questions that I think Judge Polster was raising. There's a concern anytime you have someone behind the scenes uh, about who's at the helm, who's controlling the lawsuits, who has decision-making authority, and what effect that decision-making authority might ultimately have on some of the settlements. One of many observations that I found fascinating was the benefits that defendants get out of the MDL. Um, uh, quoting from the book, defendants often stand to gain the most. Multi-district litigation dislodges plaintiffs from their preferred court, forces plaintiffs' lawyers, who have reputations for not hunting well in packs, to battle for lead positions, and renders trials a distant and unlikely threat. Um, that's a That's not a recipe for good or swift resolution, is it? Well, you would you would think not, but for defendants uh, who are trying to get total peace, right, they're hoping to end all of these lawsuits in one fell swoop. Having all of the plaintiffs centralized together makes it a lot easier to negotiate with them. You have one centralized negotiating authority rather than having to negotiate with a whole bunch of people and disperse courts across the country, rather than having to face um, lawsuits with different trial dates around the country. You know, I think that's one of the, the difficulties that the pharmaceutical companies are facing in the opioid lawsuits is that even though you have this centralized proceeding, there are a lot of different uh, state attorney generals who have opted to proceed in their own state courts. And as we're seeing right now in Oklahoma, those state courts seem to be more ready and able to give trials than the federal uh, than the federal judge is able to do. You quote Charles Silver and Jeffrey Miller, who suggest that by offering lead lawyers this sort of red carpet treatment on fees in return for favorable terms elsewhere, defendants can take advantage of lead attorneys' control over settlements to strike deals that benefit the defendant and the plaintiff's leaders, and here's the killer clause at the end of the sentence, but not the plaintiffs. Uh, elsewhere in the book, the magic phrases self-dealing and double-dipping come up. How how come plaintiffs are sort of at the back of this pack? Well, you typically think about a settlement as being an arrangement between a plaintiff and a defendant. But one of the unilateral departures that I found when looking at the private settlements in this data set is that none of them are between the plaintiff and the defendant. Instead, they're between the plaintiff's lawyers and the defendant, which means that uh, those settlements require the plaintiff's lawyers to do certain things. Well, what sort of things do they require them to do? Uh, you can imagine there are a number of different cram down provisions, because as we've talked about, defendants want to achieve the maximum amount of closure possible. So here's an example. Uh, in the propulsive litigation, 
uh, unless 85% of the death claims signed up, then Johnson & Johnson could walk away. They could exit the deal, which would mean that none of the plaintiffs nor their attorneys would be paid anything. Um, there have been some um, re uh, refined and replications of those types of provisions, what we think of as walk away or blow provisions. There are different uh, additional provisions, including um, mandatory recommendation and mandatory withdrawal provisions. The mandatory recommendation provisions require that plaintiffs' attorneys recommend that 100% of their clients accept the deal, uh, regardless of maybe whether it's in a particular client's best interest. And then for those who don't want to settle, the walkaway provisions or the withdrawal provisions require that attorneys take steps to withdraw from representing clients who refuse to settle. Um, so when I say that these may not be good deals for plaintiffs, again, I don't know what the outcomes look like most of the time. I know that they didn't look very good in the propulsive litigation. Uh, the lawyers in the propulsive litigation said they were creating a template for all future use. And from looking at the way that they have designed deals subsequently, they were absolutely right. So given what we know about propulsive and given what we know about these clauses that are in the settlements themselves, it raises red flags for me about whether they're actually good for the plaintiffs. I found the, the role of the MDL judges that you discuss quite fascinating. There are places in the book that you where you seem to suggest that some of them do too much. I think you, you when you discuss the Zimmer case, uh, that was at least the takeaway I had from that. Elsewhere, you discuss what you call judicial nudges. And also a sort of a more dramatic sort of morphing of MDL into alternative dispute resolution systems. Uh, can you tie some of those pieces together if they relate? Certainly. Um, you know, you would think that a judge would be a dispassionate, neutral arbiter. Uh, but what we're seeing is that the pro-settlement stance in all civil cases, and even in criminal cases, has taken a profound hold in multi-district litigation. Um, judges are very pro-settlement, but they get extra perks when it comes to MDL. Uh, the judicial panel on multi-district litigation is more inclined to give a judge a second MDL if they settle the first one relatively quickly. Um, and these are seen as, um, I think one judge put it, these are the dessert that we get for handling all of the pro se and social security cases. So these are treats for judges. They have some of the best lawyers in the country. They have a lot of press attention to them. Um, so judges are very pro-settlement in that sense, and they're, they're, they're hoping to settle these types of cases relatively quickly. Um, in terms of alternative dispute resolution, what I found is that um, these settlement programs actually look a lot like arbitration. In fact, some of them uh, explicitly become arbitration, and they have settlement masters who preside over them or claims administrators who have the power and the authority of an arbitrator. So if you don't like the outcome that you get under a settlement program, um, your option isn't to go back into court. Remember, you have to give up your claim in order to enter into the settlement program in the first place. But once you do that, then uh, once the claim administrator decides what your award should be, you have very limited ability to appeal that award. Um, because once you appeal, that tends to be the final binding um, award that you're entitled to receive. Well, time is pressing. I have a whole bunch of questions about the opioid case. And I, I urgently need your responses so that my next blog post won't look as quite as dumb as the last one. In the book, you noted what most of us who've been writing about this know, that back in January 2018, Judge Dan Polster, uh, who was leading the consolidation, Consolidated Claims in Cleveland, 
uh, made it clear that he didn't want to quote a whole lot of finger pointing, discovery or trials. Instead, he said he preferred to do something meaningful to abate the crisis by this year's end. Now, I guess in retrospect, that seems to be hubris. Um, and the Oklahoma <laughs> Attorney General has actually said that the MDL, the opioid MDL, is stuck in glue in a court filing that he he made. What do we know about what's going on in Cleveland? It's very quiet. The bellwethers have been pushed back a couple of times. Um, clearly, there are there are um, there's a lot of paddling under the water, but um, there certainly hasn't been very much transparency uh, from the judge or others, or even much rumor uh, coming out of Cleveland. Do we do we know what's going on there at the moment? Well, maybe you do, but I certainly don't, and I think. Uh, <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons that people and the press are paying so much attention to what's happening in the first trial in Oklahoma right now. I mean, um, this isn't just uh, local press. It's not even just national press, but international press are paying attention to what's happening in Oklahoma, I think in large part because we don't know a whole lot about what's happening in the federal MDL. Um, not only is there is, is it all sort of quiet on the front, um, but you know the judge pollster has gotten upset with the attorneys when they've spoken on 60 Minutes. There have been a lot of documents in that case that are sealed and redacted. And so, and you know, for, for me, looking into the Oklahoma trial, it's sort of like the first glimpse into Pandora's box. Uh, we want to see what the evidence looks like. We want to see what the case looks like. We want to see about how public nuisance might shake out in the state of Oklahoma. Yeah. I, I, the other thing that I find difficulty getting my head around in the MDL, and we've already alluded to it slightly when we talked about the NAS babies, um, the different sort of classes of plaintiffs and defendants. So, for example, I wonder how the pharmacy benefit managers feel about being scooped up in a big, another big, big pharma mess. And how are the tribal nations aligning themselves with political units that have so underrepresented their interests in the past? Is such misalignment of interests between parties on both sides common in MDO? I, I think it's common to some degree. I don't think it's common to the degree that we're seeing in the opioid lawsuits. Um, you know, I think the opioid lawsuits are are interesting and distinct even from the tobacco lawsuits because with tobacco, you didn't have the same sort of um, casting of the wide net that you have in the opioid lawsuits. Um, in the opioid lawsuits, you have so many different defendants, you have so many different plaintiffs, you have so many different interests who want different things. Um, so it's not as as I hate to say it. I mean, multi district litigation is messy as is as normal, but it's not as clear as most multi-district litigation. It's even messy by multi-district litigation standards. Let's talk a little bit more about the impact of this sort of parallel state litigation that we've been following. Um, not just in Oklahoma, we have a recent summary judgment in um, North Dakota on the public nuisance question. And of course, uh, in Massachusetts, Attorney General Maura Healy's filings uh, with regard to the Sackler family have created quite the stir. Typically, state attorneys generals get criticized by the MDL participants for being free riders on the MDL. In the opioid scenario, they actually seem to be out in front. 
That's right. I mean, they're really the ones that are spearheading these cases. There have been some private lawsuits. You know, there were a couple of different waves of the opioid lawsuits that began in early 2000. But they're spearheading these cases. And of course, they're not just spearheading them on their own. They're tapping the same sorts of private attorneys uh, that were tapped in the tobacco lawsuits. Does this state action with these settlements, we had the McKesson um, Pharmacy Benefit Man- uh, Manager settlement uh, a few weeks ago, do these settlements, does this activity sort of add to the knowledge base in Cleveland, kind of like Bellwether trials would be? Or can it obfuscate the issues because the MDL judge and the MDL lead plaintiffs and defendants are not sort of controlling the agenda or issues out in the states? Well, I, for one, think it's great to see the states getting involved and the state courts getting involved. I think that's what we lack in most multi-district litigations is uh, these multiple centers of power, so to speak. Um, most MDLs, the federal lawsuit is, is the lawsuit. That is the center of power. Um, but to the extent that we care, about testing these claims, about testing the merits of the claims, uh, we can look towards the state courts as laboratories. Um, the state courts that here are at the forefront. As you mentioned, Massachusetts has provided more information in their complaint than most have. They've provided the, the mostly unredacted version of the complaint. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's fascinating. I think this is, uh, in fact, a positive and a good development, even though it's probably not something that the parties themselves like. So what happened? happens if there is a settlement in Cleveland, but the states don't opt in? Or does the mere fact that they wouldn't opt in mean it's less likely there'd be a settlement in Cleveland? Well, you know, that's the that's the really hard part. Because if I am representing Johnson & Johnson or Purdue Pharma or one of the big companies, I want to get total peace. And I don't know that they can get it. I mean, even if you look at the Oklahoma AG's settlement with Purdue Pharma, it doesn't preclude the local county lawsuits that are also so um, proceeding in the federal multi-district proceeding. So we still have all these Oklahoma counties that might be going after a second pot of money. Yeah. So uh, recently you had a conversation with friend of the pod, Jen Oliver, that was published on Bill of Health. Um, and you raised some separation of powers issues there regarding state attorneys general and prospective regulatory remedies. Um could you expand on that? Because one of the pieces that I've been talking a lot about is whether just uh, monetary remedies are sufficient in the opioid situation and whether, in fact, we should be going after more um, public health epidemic abatement kind of uh, remedies. And and your comment made me wonder whether that was actually a good idea. Well, so let me uh, go back towards the tobacco lawsuits to use as an example. Um uh, because we are hiring a bunch of private lawyers, this, the public attorney generals are hiring private lawyers to litigate on their behalf, and they're hiring them on a contingency fee basis, the incentive is to go for the money, right? And I think in a lot of cases, that's what the states and the counties want is compensation for the payouts that they've made in the past. But to the extent that we care about those kinds of structural changes, our private attorney generals that have been deputized as public attorneys are they incentivized to go after the same things that we might want. So looking 
back at the tobacco case, we might have actually wanted from a public health perspective for the tobacco companies to go into bankruptcy. But by creating a 65-year settlement uh, that pays money to the states over the course of 65 years, um, they have ensured the tobacco companies' longevity. They've made sure that they... um, are still making enough money to be able to meet those payments rather than winding down the tobacco companies, which is what we might prefer from a public health perspective. Finally, Beth, one of the things that uh, litigation achieves or we believe it should achieve is the promotion of transparency. We get to hear the evidence along with the judge and the jury. Uh, In the book, you discuss how that legitimizes to an extent the outcomes of litigation. Yet the MDL approach seems a lot more secretive and specifically with regard to the opioid litigation, Judge Polster has sort of buttoned things up quite tightly. Uh, Is this black box approach usual? Is it appropriate? Is it on your list of, of things to reform in MDL? So I think one of the most important roles that litigation can play is an information uh, producing function. Uh, with the GM ignition switch cases, for example, there were a number of deaths before those lawsuits actually got rolling. Um, and it wasn't until Brooke Melton's death here in Georgia, uh, when attorney Lance Cooper decided to take that case and that he then uncovered the ignition switch defect. It wasn't until then that you had a massive recall of all of the cars that were affected by the defect. Um, So I think litigation can play that role. And it it troubles me greatly uh, that we're not seeing more transparency in the opioid lawsuits. Um, I think that we would hope that we would open it up uh, to the extent that we care about public discussion on these types of issues. And we want to get a lot of different voices and some diversity of opinions the more information we can put out there, the more opinions uh, that we can get, and the, the hopefully the better we can end up correcting those types of problems. Well, I'm sure uh, Cambridge University Press are already looking at the advance orders, realizing they've got a bestseller on their hands, and probably already approaching you about <laughs> the uh, the sequel. So, uh, what are you going to spend your next six years doing? <laughs> Well, I've actually started a new project, uh, which is looking at women's health MDLs. Uh, In other words, um, MDLs where the defendant has targeted women with their product. Uh, There have been a number of those in the past years. Pelvic mesh, talcum powder, uh, Mirena, Yasmin Yaz, a bunch of those different lawsuits. And what I'm doing right now is a procedural justice study to try to get a better sense as to what the plaintiffs themselves want out of these types of proceedings. What are these proceedings doing right? Uh, what can they improve? How can we begin to approve it in a way uh, that would satisfy the people who are the consumers of the justice system? That was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Birch for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at Elizabeth C. Birch. Elizabeth C. Birch. That was so much fun. Really learned a lot. Much appreciated you coming on the pod. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Show notes, of course, are at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.